Arabic is the official language of more than 27 countries and there are more than 400 million speakers of the language worldwide. Yet in the US, for example, less than 1% of students study Arabic. Studies have shown that those who speak a second language not only earn more, but are in higher level positions than their monolingual counterparts. And there's no shortage of studies that point to the benefits of students at the K-12 level learning a new language. The National Research Council in 2007 found that children who study a foreign language show greater cognitive development in areas such as mental flexibility, creativity and higher order thinking skills. Qatar Foundation International inspires meaningful connections to the Arab world by creating a global community of diverse learners and educators, connecting them through effective and collaborative learning environments inside and outside the classroom. Qatar Foundation International builds bridges across cultures by increasing the number of K-12 students in the Americas and the United Kingdom with a good knowledge and understanding of Arabic language and culture by increasing the number and quality of Arabic programs in state and public charter schools in the United States and other countries. Qatar Foundation International supports the teaching of the Arabic language through grant giving and programming activities while increasing and professionalizing the supply of highly qualified teachers of Arabic, thus raising the visibility of a growing profession through grants, professional development and free online resources. For more information on free teaching materials and available grants, please go to qfi.org and ispeakarabic.com. And now, a quick message from our friends at Class Central. It's been more than half a decade since free online courses from Stanford kicked off the modern MOOC or massive online open courses movement. Since then, more than 700 universities around the world have launched MOOCs and more than 60 million people have taken at least one course. Class Central has been keeping track of the MOOC space right from the beginning. Over 10 million learners have used Class Central to find and review online courses. As the number one search engine for online courses, Class Central provides a comprehensive listing of more than 8,000 MOOCs. Class Central's MOOC report blog contains the most comprehensive coverage of the industry, including a recent listing of the top 50 MOOCs of all time. To find out what's up, down, new or just slightly left field in the world of online courses, head to www.class-central.com forward slash report. Stone the Crows, hello and welcome everyone to this 8th edition of the ASU GSV Summit series on the EdTech podcast. My name is Sophie Bailey and this is the podcast dedicated to bringing together the whole spectrum of learning and talent innovation from around the world. So do let us know where you're listening in by recording a message via speakpipe.com forward slash the EdTech podcast or you can tweet us at podcast EdTech. I'm stoked to know you're tuning in. This week, we're yabbering on about Australia and edtech. Crikey! Australia is a significant player in global education innovation and for many reasons. First off, it has high-quality education and notable pedagogical thinkers such as John Hattie, Professor of Education and Director of the Melbourne Education Research Institute at the University of Melbourne and of visible learning fame. Next up, Australia invests in its education and educational infrastructure. Whilst all government investments are always disputed as to whether they are pure investment or mere paper shuffling, the Turnbull government recently reported a net increase of 6.1% or more than $41.8 billion investment in education and training for 2016-2017 to as an example. 
With investment and pedagogical rigour comes a good foundation and framework for innovation. Australia has recently been responsible for creating value businesses like Lifelong Learning and Training Company Academy XI and supply teaching app TeacherIn, and then pushing these out into the international edtech space. Not only can these companies support learning in the Australian market, but launching to the UK and beyond or reviewing the significant Chinese education opportunity. Headlines abound like Australian edtech sector eyes $51 billion Chinese online market or Frost & Sullivan's Australia's edtech market is expected to reach $1.7 billion Australian dollars by 2022. In addition, for English-speaking education companies, Australia acts as an interesting gateway to Asia without the presupposed barriers to entry of China. Notable companies going in include General Assembly and Firefly. In this episode, I explore all of this educational and economic exchange with John Angley, Senior Trade and Investment Commissioner at the Australian Government, Riley Batchelor, CEO of Accelerator EduGrowth, and startup founder Isuru Wanasinghe of Life is Yellow. But first, here's Summer Howarth, Learning Director at previous podcast guests, Education Changemakers, to set us up for this week's episode. We're really seeing quite a lot of partnerships between schools together, which is pretty interesting. So a lot of different schools across sectors are coming together to look at certain common issues around differentiation or provision of of STEM opportunities. That's pretty exciting. We're also seeing a lot of notable partnerships coming through as well through industry mentorships into schools. And what that's really doing is building up the capabilities and capacities of teachers to be thinking with an innovator's mindset. We're seeing lots of partnerships that are changing mindsets and changing curriculum with putting the teacher at the core of their own development, which is really great. EC17 is our education changemakers event within EduChange Week, which is also something that we design and architect and curate and lead. Some of those big trends were around our small sort of early stage startups. We did some work with EduGrowth and Startup Victoria and also LaunchVic here to think about those smaller businesses that are really starting to tap away at niche innovation that could help teachers do their job better. So some of the big trends that came out from that side of things, we we had nearly 40 early stage startups that were testing, prototyping, getting rapid feedback on proof of concept for what it is that they are putting into schools to support kids getting better outcomes. So that's a big trend, a big development in the Australian landscape. Other trends, I suppose, that were coming out from a school side was very much around transitions. And we had a lot of teachers who were working, you know, K to 12 and then chatting with early childhood and and really understanding how we can get better at those transitions across stages of schooling, which I think that's a really great trend. So often we get into a conversation around is it STEM or is it coding or is it the arts? And this was very much around knowing our students and how they learn and a lot of collaboration across what we call the collective genius, which is what we term for the participants of the event. Um, They were really working together to understand each other's stages of schooling and the expertise that each had in the stages of schooling so that we could get better at transitioning students while engaging them in that education worth having. 
I think that we're in a real strength space, particularly from a broad level. We've got a lot of policy makers and those that are really driving an innovation agenda with their eye on the education prize. So Victoria, which is the state that EC17 was running and that Education Changemakers is based out of, we actually had a directive as the education state. Now, that means we've got a lot of world standard higher education, secondary and early childhood as well. But we've actually also got the nation's education architecture here. We've got deliberate agencies looking after curriculum, looking after Asia education, looking after Foundation for Young Australians, looking after teacher quality. I think that we will be known for teacher-led innovation And with that, there'll be lots of opportunities for, you know, the startup ecosystem to work alongside teachers and to be really identifying and solving problems rapidly. So I think it's it's not going to be necessarily that we become known for, you know, STEM or the arts or anything project-based learning, anything that, that, that sort of comes out of it. I think we will actually be known as teachers that are well-equipped to solve problems because they have been developed and apprenticed into the art and science of the how-to of innovation. And, you know, that's that's EC's core business. That's our core mission um, and our core drive. We've recently partnered with 100, the organisation out of Finland. They had their showcase last week on the 100 innovations around the world and quite a few of those were Australian. But EC has partnered with 100 for the first spotlight and it will be the spotlight on Victoria, we're looking for 10 exceptional innovations that will change school schooling um, and education into the future. So all of that combined really comes down to the fact that it will be a teacher-led revolution, that that is what what we will be able to show the world, that innovation in education won't happen to us by external forces it it will happen because of teachers who work differently in working alongside a whole range of people that work in an, an ecosystem of innovation thanks summer that's pretty spiffy am i doing this right for more australia and edtech relevant content check out extra videos and interviews from the asu gsv summit team this week including a review of borderless higher education new global models ready or not that's all good oil A big shout out to the ASU GSV Summit, Qatar Foundation International and Class Central for sponsoring this week's episode. And don't forget, if you're enjoying the series, you can drop us a review on iTunes where you can also rate the show. So without further ado, here's episode 87 on Australia and EdTech. And let us know what you think via Twitter at Podcast EdTech and at ASU GSV Summit. So I'm delighted to be here this morning with John Angley, who's Senior Trade and Investment Commissioner at the Washington Embassy for the Australian Government, and also with Riley Batchelor, CEO of EduGrowth out of Australia. So welcome both. Thanks for having us, Sophie. So John, just to kick off, first of all, so we met yesterday. As I understand it, your role is similar to, if people are listening from the UK, the Department for Trade and International, what was UKTI. So could you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing with education, innovation and ed tech, both in terms of export and then also investing in sort of that back in Australia as well? 
Sure. Well, our organisation is actually called Austrade, and we're an Australian government-owned organisation, and we've got three roles, and they all come together with EdTech. The promotion of Australian exports, attraction of foreign direct investment to Australia, and our third major role is the promotion of the Australian education and research sector. So they all coincide when we talk about EdTech. It's about promoting Australian EdTech technology into the American market, and assisting companies who are some of whom are at this conference now but it's also looking for american edutech companies themselves but also other companies that are interested in perhaps investing or partnering with australian firms in australia and our third one is of course the education role where that fits into promoting australian education making it more effective helping deliver australian content offshore helping delivering australian content to students all around australia all those kind of advantages that edtech can bring And yesterday we were talking about, so the investment for those companies largely comes from the US when we're talking about outside of Australia, so not China, whereas perhaps the more partnership side of things comes from China, just thinking about what's closer to home as well. Yes, it's a mix. Australia's got a fair bit of investment funds, but not enough because the the sector is growing rapidly and there's a lot of competition from other sectors in the economy looking to fund their own growth. So the US has always been a major source. It's a major long-term investor in Australia. And also it's a kind of place to which Australia looks for innovation and also funding and commercialisation of of good ideas. But places like China, places like uh, Europe, places like Japan, they're all sources of funding as well. The US tends to dominate at the moment, but the others are growing. And, And even yesterday, I met some Australian firms who have been approached by Chinese investors. So, you know, the world is changing just like the technology. So, Riley, can you tell us a little bit about EduGrowth as well? So, is it an accelerator? Yeah, we're a couple of things, actually. So, one of the things we do is an accelerator. But at the top level, we're a, um, an Australian not-for-profit organisation that was set up by a, um, a group of individuals, institutions and government agencies like Austrade in Australia to essentially drive more innovation and technology into the education industry. So for us, that means working with universities, schools, teachers, academics, and also ed tech startups to get them to work together to essentially drive that innovation in the industry. And one of the key things that we're trying to do is grow the Australian ed tech industry as well. So that's very interesting. And are you based in Melbourne or outside of Melbourne? We're actually a national organization. So we run events and activities around the country, but um, our headquarters is in, uh, in Sydney. Interesting. So I saw this morning an announcement about the Victoria government putting about $80,000 into an edupreneur event in September. But I think that was in Melbourne. It's in Melbourne. Yeah, we're actually partnering on that event with the Education Changemakers guys. And um, yeah, it should be a good uh, good conference. Yeah, Yeah, that's all very exciting. And could you tell us a little bit about some of the innovators that take part in edugrowth or are part of that community as well? Yeah, so um, in our community, we have our accelerator team. So we have a full-time accelerator where we invest $50,000 for a small equity stake in, in a number of companies every year. So our first cohort this year has five companies. They're here with us at ASU GSV. And then we have a whole network of other companies in our organization. So there's about 350 edtech startups in Australia spread out around the country, but the majority in Sydney and Melbourne, about 65 to 70% of them are K-12 focused, the rest in higher ed, adult learning and early childhood. And look, there's some amazing companies coming out of Australia and there's obviously the big ones like 3P Learning and Learnosity and a lot of 
up and coming companies that are really just breaking through, raising capital, finding more customers, and then a lot of early stage companies as well. But we're pretty excited about the growth of the uh, local industry. And the government in Australia and, you know, just thinking about some of the, the large trade shows, so EduTech, Australia is really on the map, I think, in terms of EdTech. So what do you think it is that's unique about the country that provides a fertile ground for that particular sector? We have a very large education industry. So, um, you know, international education is our largest or education is our largest service export industry. So it's a big industry for us around a 20 to $21 billion industry. And we've got some great quality universities, uh, relatively strong vocational ecosystem and some, some great quality schools as well. So, you know, I've talked to a lot of folks here at ASU GSV who are saying that, you know, Australia is their third or fourth biggest country outside of the, of the US and, and perhaps Europe. So, a lot of edtech companies are organically breaking into the market. It's a great place to, I think I see a lot of companies that see Australia as a great sort of expansion opportunity. And yeah, it's a great place to uh, find some additional growth in the region. Also a good place if you're a European startup or an American startup, a great place to use as a launching pad for the rest of Asia. You know, we're, we're next yeah. door to Indonesia with several hundred million people population, Thailand, Philippines, and so on and so forth. So. It's a good place to be. And John, from your point of view, from the conversations that you've had here, are there any kind of trends that you've picked up or concerns or opportunities from the startups that you've spoken to? So just thinking about ASU GSV this this year. Uh, I think the uh, continuous challenge for the ed tech firms thinking about expanding into the US is something I hear with lots of companies that not just unique to this sector is the US is such a, a massive scale and it's also very diverse. It's obviously a lot bigger than Australia. There's no, no arguments about that, but it's also very diverse. And it's always hard to decide where to start in the US. And conferences like this are great for asking people, you know, just trying to find different ways to start. Where, you know, do you start in one of 50 states? If you're looking at schools, there's apparently 14,000 uh, local school administrations that often have their own decision-making processes. So how, where do you start if you've got a product that's aimed at the school sector? So it's that kind of challenge. None, none of it's impossible, but you've kind of got to keep thinking about what is your focus and what do you really want to do so that then you can know which part to target. Because if you don't, you'll stand there mesmerised by the, the size and the complexity and the diversity of the place. And how does that compare to the education sort of structure in Australia? Is it relatively decentralised or is it? No, look, um, the way the Australian system is is organised brings tears to American eyes <laughs> because they look and they just know what the US is like and how kind of complicated and diverse it is. And they look to Australia where we kind of tend to be fairly centralised. Each state system is heavily influenced by the headquarters. Yeah. So there's six states and eight ter uh, two territories, so eight educational authorities in the public sector and there's 42 universities and there's a huge vocational sector, so that's very diverse. But again, there's industry groups, a little bit like uh, Riley's edu growth is to his sector. There are industry groups. So when you're approaching Australia from outside, there's a, a few logical places you could at least start in your business. Whereas when you look to the US, everything's much more decentralised and diverse. And how did you both get into your relative positions? So what were your backgrounds in terms of starting where you are now? Well, I, I've been in the Washington Embassy for 18 months, end of 2015. Before that, I uh, ran the, the Austrade education role from Canberra with our onshore team and also our 
80 or 90 posts around the world promoting because that role about promoting Australian education and research and from that in the last year the government asked us to consult the international education sector not the broad sector but the international education sector about where do we want the sector to be in 2025 so 10 years from 2015 and what do we need to to do to get there and it was when we were doing that we were aware of education technology but it was during that where edtech firms started to turn up at consultations and you know had some really good ideas and it was obvious that education technology was going to be one of the ways in which we were able to expand the reach of Australian international education as distinct from, as an alternative to recruiting students to Australia. So that's how we got into it. I mean, that's very interesting because I don't know, I mean, I was at an event the other day and they were talking about how since Trump and Brexit, the the kind of inbound of international students has changed quite a bit. So I think the US has taken quite a hit and more people are going to Canada and that kind of thing. So I don't know if you've experienced anything similar in terms of Australia becoming a, a more popular destination for international students. A- anecdotally, we have. I think it's far too early to kind yeah. of be sure whether it's a trend or not. But you, you do hear and you certainly do read in the both the Australian press but also the international press that students thinking about coming to the US, which is, you know, obviously the still the main place that people think about, are also thinking about other countries. So at least they're kind of broadening their mm. their thoughts once it was about which university or college to go to in the US. Now they're apparently starting to think a bit more broadly, but really I think it's pretty much too early to start thinking there's a trend there. We, we just have to wait and see. And we don't know about Brexit really, because again, that's less than a year since that occurred. So I think it'll take a while to wash through. Feels like more. <laughs> yes. And, um, ha- and how about you, Riley? How did you get into your what you're doing now? Yeah. So I've been working in um, technology and startups for I think the last sort of 13 or 14 years. And I've been an entrepreneur for, for the last 20 years. I did my first startup in you know, 2004, I think it was, and it was very different back in those days, but cut my teeth in the space. And then um, more recently, I've been working in EdTech for about the last five years. I brought a company called General Assembly, which is in the education space, to Australia. I was sort of the local founder and, and joint venture partner there and opened that business in Sydney and we expanded it to Melbourne and then later to Singapore and I was working on Hong Kong as well. So got into education that way. So that must have been fascinating and really, I mean, that's such a huge area, isn't it? The skills development side of things. So Yeah, it was a fantastic business and, and still going extremely strong these days. I sort of wanted to bring that business to Australia to help fill the skill gap as a founder that I was finding it hard to find technical talent and all the founders were all sort of saying the same. So we wanted to train some more local people to bring technical talent into the market and then user experience design, digital marketing, all that sort of stuff. So it was very well received and continues to grow in, in Australia and the other markets today. So final question to you both. I always ask everyone if they have any books, resources or people that have inspired them that you'd like to share with everyone. So it doesn't have to be necessarily to do with education or business, but things that you like to go back to that you think have had an impact on the way you think. Yeah, besides the EdTech podcast, um, there's a few that I can I can think of. But I, I used to read a lot more business books in um, in my earlier days, I think. Just to list a couple, though, probably a bit cliched, but we ask all of our founders to obviously read The Lean Startup by Eric Ries and, and that sort of uh, – those types of books. Um, Venture Deals by Bradfield is another one that we will ask our startups to certainly read as they get ready to raise capital into their business as well. I'm a big fan of, of EdSurge as well in terms of EdTech. Mine is not a book, but it's um it's a minister who's now retired, but it was Andrew Robb, our Minister for Trade, who insisted in end of 2014 
that we think about what we need to do over the next 10 years and not just get caught up in the idea that Australian international education had returned to its pre-GFC levels, but he was saying, no, look, let's really pause for a moment and think about the next 10 years, get the sector to talk about it and think about it because he didn't think we were getting complacent, but we could be busy and let it just go. But let's pause and actually stop and think about what, what we want to do. Where do we want to be in 10 years? And let's get ready for it. And I, and I just think we could have just kept going and it would have been all quite successful, but doing that just gives everybody a buy-in, but it also gives people an idea of where we're heading. Now, whether we get there or it changes along the way, like everything else, it's a, it's a different issue. But that was a good reminder to say, no, let's just stop for a moment and think about it. And what was the vision that you kind of collectively came up with for Well, we, um, we we actually published it about this time last year in 2016, and there were two things. One was to – it was a lot broader than this, I have to say, than just two dot points. But one was to double the number of students recruited to Australia, but also to use education technology and other forms – to reach out to the forecast numbers of students around the world, you know, which is 100 million in 2025, and how we would get to those. And that's what really led us strongly into the education technology because that was the way we were going to do it. And our first thoughts about education technology was about finding suitable platforms in Australia and process offshore to deliver Australian content. But it's far broader than that now, of course. But that was how we first started thinking about it. But it, it was that insistence that we just have a real serious think about 10 years' time rather than tomorrow or next week. Yeah, which especially at an event like this, can you can get caught up in just, you know, treading water and, yeah, surviving the week. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing, uh, amazing event, as you can tell by my voice. I'm, I'm, I may not <laughs> yeah. be able to speak by the end of the day, but um, I've never seen networking like this. It's really networking uh, at an extreme pace, but um, an amazing event with so many great people and so, so much good content. And so if people would like to get in contact with both of you and find out more about the initiatives that you're running, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, yeah, pop onto our website, so edugrowth.com.au, and you'll find our emails on there. And yeah, if there's anyone, any folks in the UK or any other parts of the world that are thinking about um, bringing their education technology business to Australia, I'd be happy to chat to them. My, my email is on the website and um, yeah, help with market insights or connections and um, introductions. Austrade's got 80 or 90 posts around the world. So if a, if a listener wants to look up Austrade in their local um, web search, they'd probably find the office. But they could just write to me, which is john.angley, A-N-G-L-E-Y, at austrade.gov.au, and I'll pass it on to the, the right part of the world. Fantastic. Thank you, John, and thank you, Riley. I'm here with Suru Wanasingha. That's right, yeah. Hooray, <laughs> from Life is Yellow. Yes. It's the continuation of Australia Day on the EdTech podcast because you're a startup out of Australia here as part of the EduGrowth cohort, is that correct? That's right, yeah, yeah. As part of the EduGrowth Accelerator. Uh, so we're here with Navitas Ventures as well, uh, who's kind of the, the top dog of this whole situation. And they've got a huge presence here at, at ASUGSV, so it's, it was, it's very exciting to be a part of that. And so tell me all about yourself and all about Life is Yellow. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so at Life is Yellow, we design and develop video games to help kids learn mathematics. The, the big difference, and, and I think we've got to draw this really strong distinction between what I'm doing and some of the things that we might be seeing in schools right now. In the digital space, when it comes to mathematics and games, there's a lot of products that are simply digitizing uh, worksheets. 
in Australia, the, the, the biggest product is Mathletics. Uh, in the United States, you've got products like IXL and Splash Math. And what they've done is they've, they've, they've taken the worksheet and they've, take, they've borrowed elements from the video game industry like trophies and badges and points. And they've tried to make education a bit more sticky, mathematics a bit more sticky to try to get these kids to do more practice. The next chapter when it comes to delivering educational content will not be a medium that simply improves that stickiness by 50% or 60%. It'll be something that improves the stickiness twofold, fivefold, tenfold, you know, 500%, 1,000%. And I think that it's going to come in the form of a very different kind of delivery. And I'm actually suggesting that, that delivery might be video games. So, you know, with the game that I'm developing, and I'll actually touch on something very exciting that happened earlier this morning as well. But with the game that I'm developing, uh, you run this crazy takeaway shop uh, serving, Love it already. <laughs> <laughs> serving uh, tomato soup to this never-ending line of hungry cats. That's the essence of the game. You and I would play it you know, on the, on the bus or the train to and from work. But when you place it in the hands of a, of a six-year-old child, he or she ends up going through hundreds, if not thousands, of mental arithmetic calculations because you have to add a price tag to every tray that you deliver. Now, the hardest part of the game is actually not the mental arithmetic, it's actually making the soup. So the mathematics has to very quickly become second nature to you in order for you to keep up with the pace of the game. And what's really cool about video games is that when you fail, uh, you are right back on it. You are very quick to jump, to hit that retry button and jump right back on it. And that's really where you get that power. I actually, in, in that 10 a.m. session that uh, we had a couple of days ago that you were leading, they talked about switching the word failure for iteration. That is the essence of bringing video games into the education industry. So that's that big distinction between you know, gamifying worksheets versus using natural gameplay and integrating uh, educational objectives as a part of natural gameplay. There's a huge distinction there. And the thing I want to talk about with this morning actually is, I don't know if you got, got the opportunity to sit in on the, on the morning keynote. I didn't, unfortunately. Uh, Who oh. was that this morning? Well, there was uh, there was a whole bunch of stuff, and one of the ones that really that really struck me naturally is um, two guys who used to work at well, a whole team of them who used to work at Rovio. Lightning. Rovio is uh, is yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. They've yeah. been on Light the podcast. Dio. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you already know them. Uh, yeah. So they used to work at uh, oh, they 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 produced Angry Birds, you know, over four billion downloads, one of the stickiest products in human history, and they're now working on a product, as you know. They're working on a product that it's a game. It's first and foremost a game and it teaches you about particle physics uh, without you actually realizing it. And they said something really interesting, which is something that I've been trying to share with people that I have conversations with that, that doesn't make a lot of sense for them. This idea of like anyone would play it, a five-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 25-year-old, a 35-year-old, and they will play it because they're just having fun. Yeah. And as a side effect, you'd learn things and you wouldn't even know it. And it was so refreshing to hear a really big player reflect those same thoughts. I don't know if you saw the keynote from the CEO of Unity. Yeah, I was there for that. Oh, that was extraordinary. And he was also talking about uh, the failure aspect and, you know, yes. the fact that it's just absolutely part of the game and, you know, yes. you just get back and get back into it. So. Yeah. And I love that. I love that how it contrasts so directly with the way we perceive failure inside of schools, you know, because in a school test, Failing is the absolute worst thing in the world. And it's what, it's what kids are afraid of. But, you know, in the real world, you know, in startup culture, when you're, when you're developing a business and also in the video game world, failure is iteration. You're supposed to fail. 
you're supposed to fail a few times before you get it right. And actually, it's part of the fun, right? It's part of the reason that you kind of like, it drives you, the failure drives you. And that's what drives a lot of entrepreneurs as well. And it's really exciting to hear that kind of philosophy now finally making its way into education. And I think it's something that's going to rub educators the right way as long as we work closely with them. The worst thing that you can get is developers and people who work in the entertainment industry going too far with ideas like that without working closely with the people who understand the kids the best, which is teachers. And so how did you get into the educational game space? And, you know, what was your kind of uh, history before that? Uh, So about four years ago, I started uh, my first education company. It's an after-school tutoring center in Sydney, Australia. Uh, So kids would come to our premises. We have two stories of a small building in Sydney. They come to our premises after school to get taught essentially all over again. We have about 35 teachers, uh, and we assume that the child knows nothing. We assume that they were not taught at all. The reason we make that assumption is because uh, teaching quality can vary very dramatically from school to school, even from classroom to classroom inside of a single school. So we assume they haven't learned anything. And uh, we provide an end-to-end solution when it comes to, to schooling, essentially. Our space is essentially a second home for a lot of these kids. They, they come in and they spend most of their time there. Now, when you develop a space like that, you are front and center with you know, some of the biggest issues that teachers are challenged with. And in this case, it was a challenge of engagement. How do you deliver content that is sticky with children? And that's kind of where Life is Yellow came from. You know, I realized that a lot of the content that we deliver inside of really any classroom across the world, if we change the medium by which we deliver it and we draw inspiration heavily from other industries like the video game industry, you can actually remove a lot of the unhappiness that you find in the classroom. I think the biggest thing for me was there is this perception, you and I both know this and everyone knows this, there's this perception that school sucks and that education sucks, right? This is what what students think about school, about class. And I think that's horrible and it makes no sense because education should inherently be this fun, adventurous thing. And somehow we seem to have sucked all the joy out of education. So for me, it was kind of like, I should totally try to design and develop products that brings the joy back into that space. And that's kind of what got me into it. And what was your own education like and where was that? So I went through all of elementary school or primary school uh, in Malaysia. Oh, wow. Because uh, my dad's a civil engineer. He got, a, he got a job there. So we all kind of moved there to be with him, be closer to him. And then all of high school and, and university was in Sydney, Australia. I can't say that I, I didn't dislike school that much, to be honest. But I know a lot of people who kind of struggled through it. There's also this huge misunderstanding when it comes to the things that we learn at school and why we learn it. That's something that I felt as well. And, you know, growing up, I kind of just ignored it. You know, you just, it's really bad. You had to adjust to the system. So what I just ended up doing was, you know, just uh, study obsessively until you could do well in those exams so that you could get into the degree that you wanted. I I ended up studying engineering. And um, it's funny, it was actually in my engineering degree for for the very first time that I started to understand some of the practical reasons why we learn some of the technical things we learn at school. But why do we wait for so long to connect education to the real world? It makes no sense. So there's um, an award-winning math teacher in Finland called uh, Marit Rossi. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she's a Global Teacher Prize nominee. But uh, she's been really successful in getting, I think, in Finland, if you look at the amount of girls that are sort of passing maths and doing well at maths, it's high relatively 
compared to other countries across yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she was very passionate about taking it back to real world problem solving. So, for example, give the children uh, the problem of, you know, there's a refugee camp. How many blankets does everyone need? How much food does everyone need? This is, you know, the amount of people, this is the distance have to travel and, and kind of working out like that. So, yeah, that's, that's extraordinary. And, you know, there's a lot of really exciting things happening in, in Finland. And it's really cool that, that the rest of the world is at least watching. And it'd be very exciting to see, you know, some much larger countries, you know, like America actually start to adopt those things. That'd be very exciting to see that. So next week I'm taking part in Lego's conference in Denmark. Cool. You know, the panel's all about STEM and yeah. STEAM and how do we go about engaging people in that, engaging yeah. young people in that. So if you were on that panel, what would your kind of key message be? Well, it, it changed a little bit from age group to age group, but I'll talk about, I'll talk about, I'll talk about calculus because, you know, calculus is is one of the more complex things that we learn in, in, in high school. And, and calculus is an interesting topic when it comes to STEM because it kind of applies to a whole bunch of those. It's mathematical, it's engineering, it's, it's tech, it's, all the, it's kind of like this thing that kind of applies and ties everything together, which is cool. I think that in 10, 20 years, kids will no longer wonder why it is that we learn calculus. The reason I say that is, well, let me tell you first, actually, when it was that I first discovered why we learn calculus. It was in second year engineering when we use calculus to calculate the force that a structure would place on the ground beneath it to see whether it was viable, whether it was buildable. That was a very, that was second year university. I had been doing calculus for four years by that point. So for four years, I had no idea why we, why we learned calculus. And all of a sudden they revealed it. And it wasn't some big reveal, it was just part of an assignment. And all of a sudden it clicked for me that this is why we learned calculus. But in 10, 20 years, Kids will no longer wonder why it is that we learn calculus in year 11. And the reason that I say that is that you won't learn calculus in a textbook or through worksheets or through a workbook. You will learn calculus in a what will likely be a game simulation. If you've ever played SimCity before, uh, it's a, a building. So you get to build a city inside of this game and you're going to try to manage um, your water utility, electricity utility, and your budget, etc. That's, that's, it, it's a great game, but what will happen in the future is that you'll be as a student you will interact with devices like tablets or, or phones or or desktop computers even uh and build you'll be given the you'll be given digital building tools like you get in SimCity to build a dam to let's say save a a population in some part of the world that is running out of water that will be the game objective and you would have to use calculus in combination with the digital building tools to actually achieve that objective if you teach calculus in that mode and in that way, kids will no longer wonder why we learn all that mathematics. It's immediately obvious the grand gravity of that subject topic. And I think that it is our responsibility to start to look to that future and to start to experiment in that space today. I think it's our responsibility to start to make our mistakes when it comes to developing products like that because we're not gonna get it right. And it'll only come into fruition in a, in a meaningful way in 10, 20 years if we start to experiment today. So, you know, my biggest, what would excite me the most is to see creative companies and educators come together and to start to build those simulations today so that we can get it right eventually. And that's like the promising end of VR and AR, isn't it? Yeah. Where, where yeah. it becomes like a simulation uh, that helps learning as opposed to just, you know, immersive for its own sake, I think. So. That's right. Yeah. It has to provide value beyond just the immersion. Yeah. And what happens here is you're in a very meaningful way connecting theory to practice. All of a sudden, you've kind of got a, a set of, 
you know, 15 year old engineers who kind of finally get it. Yeah. And you don't have that today. And of course, it's something you can try and break and, you know, actually you don't cause a, a natural disaster, yeah, a man-made yeah. disaster. Which, which kind of comes back to that, you know, failure iteration thing, right? All of a sudden it's where we're inviting the student to give it a go. It's okay if you fail. It's okay if you mess it up. You're supposed to mess it up in here so you don't mess it up out yeah, there. Yeah, in the real world. Right? <laughs> so life is yellow. So is that aimed primarily direct to the learner him or herself or is it for teachers to investigate so i've released a very early version of the game onto the app store so if you have an iphone or an ipad uh, you can actually search for life is yellow on the app store and download it it, it was a soft launch so i it, it was not an official launch the reason i put it on the app store at all is to make it easy to, to distribute to, to teachers and we're going through a very rigorous testing phase right now so the game is by no means anywhere close to perfect there's lots of things that we need to figure out the learning curve is extremely steep right now, but you should totally give it a go. You should download it. You should have a play. I'm currently trying to collaborate with as many teachers and with as many schools as possible. The game is free. It is a collaborative relationship that I have with schools, not a transactional one. Uh, the game will, will likely always be free with perhaps in-app purchases that people can buy. And and the people who buy in the in-app purchases may not even necessarily just be parents. It might be just the, the general public who enjoys playing the game. But the stage that we're at right now is to get the game right. So if you're, a, if you're a teacher, if you're a school principal, or, or you work with children in any way, shape, or form, you should download the app and, and reach out and, and email us. My name is Isuru, so I-S-U-R-U at lifeisyellow.com. Email me directly, because there is no way that we're gonna get this product right without some very, very deep collaboration with school teachers who will tell us what works and what doesn't. So that's kind of the stage that we're at right now. Excellent, well, thank you very much, Thank Isuru. you. Thank you for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this eighth episode from the 10-part ASU GSV Summit series. Don't forget to sign up to our newsletter to find out about our upcoming meetup drinks, cool jobs currently circulating, and other announcements. For full references, show notes, and book recommendations, go to theedtechpodcast.com. And for competitions and more, go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash podcast edtech. If you like what you hear, why not drop us a loving review on iTunes? And come back next time for our following episode featuring a focus interview with the relatively new CEO at Kahoot, Eric Harrell.